This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, an FDA advisory panel approves both Moderna and J&J booster shots for COVID-19. We're headed in the right direction. The Biden administration moves to head off inflation and a supply chain bottleneck, but will it help? I don't think it's going to make a major change. In the kaleidoscope, Haitian migrants taking risky journeys and running into trouble in their home nation. You find your own way. There are really no services. I'm Allison Keyes in the Washington Bureau. This week, big steps in the battle against the coronavirus pandemic. At the same time, President Biden is trying to mitigate inflation and high prices, partly driven by gridlock at the nation's ports. But first, an advisory panel for the FDA approves booster COVID-19 shots of both Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines for some Americans. President Biden made a new appeal to those who haven't had their first doses. Let's be clear. Vaccination requirements should not be another issue that divides us. CBS's Ed O'Keefe at the White House. He seems to be somewhat softening his language on mandates versus requirements, saying that this shouldn't be yet another issue that divides the country. I think this White House understands that the pressures that have been put on this, the legal and the political challenges that are out there, are the kind that could just discourage people to sort of not participate in fighting the pandemic, or at least just tune it out and, and start to not worry about it at a time when worrying about it and actually finishing off the job is in sight and would lead to some kind of resumption of the new normal and certainly help drive economic activity and probably take the pressure off the White House. Speaking of economic activity, the president took a move on Wednesday saying that he's going to try and tame high inflation and solve that problem at the ports that has things backed up all over the country. What's he doing? Yeah, this is a, a another outgrowth of the pandemic, a really unique economic situation driven by global market forces. A lot of things at play here and really a reminder that the global economy now really is interconnected like never before. Remember that during the pandemic in Asia, there were work stoppages and slowdowns in factories in China, Vietnam, and other countries. And then there was a lack of supply followed by a huge influx of supply and so much pent-up demand. And then here in the United States, as those cargo shipments were arriving, there weren't enough truckers and there weren't enough people working the ports to get all that stuff off the boats and onto the streets and eventually to American front doors. And so uh, that backlog has not yet been cleared. But one of the biggest choke points has been the Port of Los Angeles and the nearby Port of Long Beach, both there on the West Coast. Combined, they bring in about 40% of the nation's container traffic, everything from toys to televisions, appliances, sneakers, and increasingly in the coming weeks, 
the holiday gifts that Americans will be ordering to put under the tree or the menorah. And so the White House understands that by making this announcement this week and convincing Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Samsung, UPS and FedEx to pick up the pace to work with the new uh, 24-7 operations at the Port of Los Angeles, then hopefully that backlog over time now will be eased. And once it is, once economic activity resumes to normal and the supply and demand levels are a little more back to a proper balance, it's then that the Federal Reserve expects inflation will come down uh, and that economic activity can pick up again as expected. All of this is just a unique outgrowth of what happened beginning in early 2020 with the pandemic, the shutdown, and now the resumption. And this is, you know, it bleeds into the airports with the problems with pilot shortages, cancellations there as mandates for vaccines are put in place, and that causes cancellations. You know, it it, it happens in all sorts of ways, and this White House has been straddled with it, understands they've got to respond to it, but clearly cannot use the full backing and power of the federal government to drive economic activity. That's just not the way it works. But the president this week, at least, trying to use his bully pulpit, his convening authority to say to the private sector, you've got to work together to figure this out. And by getting the Port of Los Angeles to go 24-7, by getting these delivery companies to step up their activity, by convincing retailers to move overnight shifts into place to help move this cargo, the hope is that that'll ease the burden, make the holidays a little easier, and start to end that backlog. CBS is at O'Keefe. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger explains the situation. Well, the prices are really been have been on the rise uh, month after month for months now. Uh, this is really due to a combination of factors. Obviously, there is surging demand as the economies around the world started opening up, but there's been a big problem with supply. Uh, there were decisions made early in the pandemic that have come back to bite producers, and uh, they can't really change course so quickly. And on top of that, we do have a real issue around our ports and snags in the global supply chain, all of which have conspired to create uh, inflation of more than 5%. Uh, Unfortunately, it does not appear that's going to come down anytime soon. Most economists believe we're talking probably at the end of the first quarter of next year. So could be a pretty expensive holiday season for consumers. How badly should consumers be worried about this? I mean, you walk into the store, milk costs more, gas is costing more. It's getting pretty pricey out there. Yes, it is. But um, remarkably, um, the spending habits of, of consumers haven't shifted all that much just yet. Um, obviously, the, that the price at the pump and food prices being higher really does sort of indicate that that we are in a bit of a hurt right now. Uh, the retail sales report, which came out early Friday morning, showed that consumers are spending more, mostly because of those price increases. Um, I think that, that folks are going to start altering the way they spend as more data come out uh, in the coming couple of months. But then we really should start to see a lot of these prices dissipate. The Federal Reserve has said continuously, as well as Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, that these are temporary increases. Many economists are worried that they may not be so temporary that some of the price increases could stick around longer than uh, the at least the administration and longer than we all would hope for. And also people seem to be quitting their jobs all over the place, which can't be helpful to the economy. 
Well, there is a real lack. Uh, there is a real shortage in the labor market in certain areas. Now, you know, those shortages can be seen, whether it's a, a driver, a delivery driver, a driver of a truck cross country, um, uh, someone who is unloading at a port, um, but also really uh, among women specifically who are leaving the labor force in droves. Almost three million women have left the labor force since the pandemic began. This really does come down to child care. I mean, Many people who have kids under the age of 12 are just worried. They don't want to put themselves at risk. And those who have younger kids, the ones who are not even in school yet, just can't find child care. I mean, there's just been an exodus from that business, from that sector of workers. And that leaves a lot of families short. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Coming up, the TV starship captain who finally made it into space. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. When you get HubSpot Sales Hub, it's like getting a new teammate. An efficient, organized, helpful teammate who's also super easy to work with and won't microwave leftover shrimp scampi in the break room. Learn how you can close deals faster and crush your revenue goals with Sales Hub at HubSpot.com sales. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high-quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Friday afternoon, an FDA advisory panel recommended emergency use authorization for a booster coronavirus shot for everyone who has had the single-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. CBS's Alex Tin. A panel of the FDA's outside vaccine advisors has voted unanimously to back allowing for booster shots of Johnson & Johnson for all adults first given the single-shot vaccine at least two months ago. While data suggests that Johnson & Johnson's vaccine protection might not be waning over time like the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, studies also show the vaccine appears to consistently rank less effective than the other two vaccines. The panel Thursday backed the use of the Moderna booster vaccine for high-risk and older adults, as well as younger adults with health issues and workers who face a higher risk of getting the coronavirus. Next, the FDA must issue a final determination. Then the matter goes to a CDC panel. And finally, the CDC will issue its own guidance. Right now, the COVID surge is raging through parts of rural America, including Montana. CBS's Meg Oliver is with the family there. Oh, my gosh. Pam Lee fights back tears as her 35-year-old daughter, Hillary, tries to wave through the window. Love you, too. After months of waiting, the restaurant manager, with no health issues, was planning to get the vaccine when she got COVID. Within two weeks, she was on a ventilator. I was a nurse for over 40 years, and so I I knew this could happen. I was praying it never would, but here we are. How does her prognosis look? I, I can't even go there. 
I can't even go there. She's only alive because of this machine. I don't know why people aren't more scared of what we're seeing every day with this. Dr. Jamie Belsky is vice chair of the emergency department at Billings Clinic. She says if the number of patients does not start to fall, the hospital will have to consider rationing care. How do you get more people vaccinated to stop this? They have to spread the word. One of Dr. Belsky's former patients is helping her get the word out. When I saw you two weeks ago, you could barely breathe. Oh, I know. We met 59-year-old Frank Miller in September after a long battle with COVID-19, which compromised his motor skills. Now in a rehab center, nice and easy. he's learning how to walk and eat again. I would advise that maybe everybody should go and get the shot. Meanwhile, patients like Lee are fighting to survive. Hillary, your mom is up there. When you look at her, what do you think? I can't even think. It's just painful to watch. And these things can be prevented. Painful to watch. It's very painful. The Lees wanted to talk to us to let us know when Hillary got COVID. She spent the first 10 days calling all her unvaccinated friends, urging them to get the shot. Her family can only hope it's not too late for her. Meg Oliver, CBS News. Billings, Montana. Still some signs of hope as the White House said Friday it will lift travel restrictions for fully vaccinated foreign nationals on November 8th for both air travel and land borders. CBS's Adrian Bard reports from Mexico City that announcement hit close to home for many. The announcement on Wednesday that the U.S. plans to lift a 19-month-long ban on non-essential border land crossings was viewed as a diplomatic victory by Mexican officials. Finally, there is a reopening of activities at the northern border, said Mexico's Security Minister Rosa Isela Rodriguez. She did so while pointing to slides, illustrating the number of vaccines given in each Mexican border state. 3.7 million of those vaccines were donated by the U.S. and specifically earmarked for the border. The number of people vaccinated, say both U.S. and Mexican officials, is one of the main reasons the U.S. is lifting the ban. The vaccine average is very high, said Mexican Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard. And it's especially so at the border. U.S. Ambassador to Mexico Ken Salazar confirmed that in a written statement announcing the reopening. Salazar said along the border, more than 80% of Mexicans aged 18 and over have had at least one dose. But one dose is not going to cut it. The State Department said a full vaccination scheme will be required. And foreigners who want to cross into the U.S. by land will also be required to show proof of vaccination. That's something that might make the already two-hour lines at border crossings much longer, says my friend Karina Landeros, who lives in Mexicali, just across from Calexico, California. So what do you think is going to happen now that everyone's going to have to get out and show their vaccine certificate? Is that going to make it longer? Yes, I was thinking on that. (laughs) How are they going to check all the vaccines every time that you cross? It's going to take longer for sure. For starters, there are 13 million Mexicans vaccinated with either Sputnik, made in Russia, or CanSino from China. As of now, neither the CDC nor the World Health Organization recognize those vaccines as effective. Still, most locals are thrilled about the reopening, not just because it will help Mexico's economy, but because it will make it easier to visit family. This summer, my friend Karina decided 
to fly from the border south to Mexico City and from there north to Los Angeles in order to visit her U.S. family. She was able to do that because flying into the U.S. was never banned during the pandemic, only land crossing. I could have done that by car in three, four hours. And this flight, I have to go one day before and then the next day very early. And I arrive at LA at 12. So it actually took you two days to get to LA. Is that right? Yes. For the CBS Weekend Roundup, I'm Adrian Bard in Mexico City. The actor who played Star Trek's Captain James T. Kirk finally got to space for real. Of course it blew William Shatner's mind and made him think about eternity. CBS's Peter King. From launch to landing. Welcome back, the newest astronauts. The flight appeared to go perfectly. William Shatner described it this way. It's the most profound experience I can imagine. I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just... It's extraordinary. Extraordinary. For those who've done it, space flight is usually a life-changing experience. It was no different for William Shatner, who says he was overwhelmed by the blackness of space and the blue that surrounds the Earth. And you're looking into blackness, into black ugliness. And you look down, and there's the blue down there, and the black up there, and it's there's this pillow, there's this soft blue. Look at the beauty of that color. And it's so thin, and you're through it in an instant. I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can uh, maintain what I feel now. I, I don't want to lose it. It's so, it's so much larger than, than me and life. For decades, people have said we should send poets and writers into space instead of just astronauts. Perhaps sending William Shatner was the next best thing. For the CBS News Weekend Roundup, I'm Peter King. The woman at the center of some of the most extraordinary discoveries in medical science is finally being honored for research using her cells. This week, the World Health Organization decided to right the wrongs that saw a black woman exploited in her lifetime and marginalized in death. It gave her an award for her contributions to medicine, including the polio vaccine, cancer, and age research. Her family was there. CBS News correspondent Elaine Cobb reports. In 1951, Henrietta Lacks, a black mother of five, went to the segregated hospital in Baltimore where she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. During her treatment, a sample of her cancer cells was sent to a researcher who discovered that they thrived and doubled every 20 to 24 hours. They were the first living human cells found to survive and multiply outside the human body. That discovery couldn't help Lax, who died just eight months after her diagnosis. But HeLa cells, as they became known, have been used and commercialized across the globe. It's estimated that something like 50 million metric tons of HeLa cells have been used worldwide by researchers and scientists. And this has resulted in something like 75,000 scientific publications in the literature. So this is just enormous. Dr. Sumia Swaminathan, chief scientist at the World Health Organization, says they have even been sent into space to study how human cells react in zero gravity. It's been used for the development of many products, including the polio vaccine and drugs for treating cancer, HIV, AIDS, hemophilia, 
leukemia, Parkinson's disease. The cells were named after Henrietta Lacks using the first letters of her first and second names. But there is a disturbing side to the story. While HeLa cells were making a global impact, Henrietta's family was not informed. It was not until 20 years after her death that we would learn how science retrieved her cells and her grandmother's enormous contribution to medicine and humanity. Her grandson, Alfred Carter, said the medical staff who sent her cells to the research lab never told Lax what they were doing and they never asked her permission. What happened to Henrietta was wrong. The Director General of the World Health Organization this week paid tribute to Lax in a special ceremony. Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said Henrietta Lax was discriminated against because of her race and gender. Henrietta Lax was exploited. She is one of many women of color whose bodies has been misused by science. She placed her trust in the health system so she could receive treatment. But the system took something from her without her knowledge or consent. He said the injustice was compounded by the fact that some medical companies made huge profits from the advances made possible by her extraordinary cells. But those advances were not and are still not shared in an equitable manner around the world. That includes the HPV vaccine that protects women and girls against the cervical cancer that killed Lax. We also recognize the extraordinary potential that her legacy continues to offer. There are many more lives we can save by working for racial justice and equity. That's also important to her great-granddaughter, Victoria Baptiste, who is a registered nurse. I am proud to also be here today to honor my great-grandmother's legacy by advocating to ensure equitable access to the breakthroughs that her HeLa cells have advanced, such as HPV and COVID-19 vaccines. She was a pioneer in life, giving back to her community, helping family and friends live a better life and caring for others. In death, she continues to help the world. Henrietta Lacks died 70 years ago this month. She was 31. Elaine Cobb, CBS News. Earlier this month, Lacks' family filed a lawsuit against Thermo Fisher Scientific, saying it is knowingly profiting from the unlawful conduct of Johns Hopkins doctors and its ill-gotten gains rightfully belong to her estate. Kane University in New Jersey is known as one of the top 10 most diverse institutions in the northern U.S. But CBS's Lisa Mateo tells us its president wanted the staff to reflect the student population. Dr. Lamont Repolette knows a thing or two about diversity. He was the first African-American commissioner of education under New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy and now the first African-American president of Kane University. Growing up as a military child, he was surrounded by it. My parents used to have friends from all over the world in our house. And I used to love that because I used to learn from it. We lived in Germany, so I learned the German culture. My parents are from Panama. I've never met black Panamanians before. What does diversity mean to you? Inclusion, access, differences, different thoughts, perspective, makeup, um, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's gender, whether it's nationality. Um, To me, it's just a tapestry of individuals that look different from one another, that speak different, that talk different. It's that same belief Dr. Repolette used to diversify his staff at Kane to reflect the university's 76% students of color. When they walk in the classroom, every other class, you're going to see someone that truly represents you. You can't have a culture, high expectation when, when, when everyone feels 
that the system is against them. Right? Our mission talks about first-generation students. Our mission talks about uh, the good, of the, the great of the cause, right? The school in the context. Really, how do we give uh, from intellectual to being uh, responsive to our community? And then we created goals, and the goal was to let's use this year as an opportunity to diversify the workforce. To achieve that goal, Dr. Repolette created the Equity in Action Presidential Postdoctoral Fellowship Program. As Commissioner of Education, I talked about diversifying the workforce, and I said, okay, this is an opportunity for me to show equity in action. Because too many times, organizations, either mission statement, they talk about equity, right? They hire DEI officers and they talk about equity. Well, to me, it's always about the action is what we do. We've taken individuals who just may have completed their PhD programs or maybe their first year somewhere out in the field and want to come back in academia. They're researchers, clinicians, and educators from different backgrounds, races, and ethnic groups whose life experiences and employment history Dr. Repolette feels will contribute to Kane's academic mission and enhance the environment. Since January 1st of this this year, more than 50% of the faculty and staff hired have been people of color, and the numbers are even more inclusive. We have one individual here. She does um, research on disabilities, and she's a disabled American. When people have diverse perspective, it adds to what we already have, it adds to the rich narrative. The students couldn't agree more. Jason Plates is a senior. Staff have the power to guide. They have the power to motivate and sometimes even be the reason many students push to succeed all the way to the finish line. And when a student like me, a student of color, see staff, faculty, and administrators who may look like me working in higher education and helping and guiding other students, it gives me that layer of confidence to say that I am also able to succeed as well. The mission of Kane is, is still the same, but the approach is different. And the approach is different based off my lived experience and my perspectives. The feeling of inclusion extends far beyond the staff. When I'm looking at equity and access and making sure that do we have policies in place for our LGBTQ to make sure they feel safe on campus. And if we can make everyone on this campus feel comfortable on skin, then we've won. A winning solution to a growing need. Lisa Mateo, CBS News. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope the plight of desperate Haitian migrants. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad free top podcasts included with your prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's Amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope, where every week we discuss issues including disability and gender. This week, we're looking at the plight of the Haitian migrants, as many are still trying to make their way from South America to the U.S. to seek asylum. You remember that crisis a few weeks ago, where thousands of mostly Haitian migrants camped under a bridge on the southern border. They're gone now, some having been sent back to Haiti with limited housing, food, and water. Taisha Santil at the nonprofit Haitian Bridge Alliance tells us thousands are making risky journeys to get here. People are still making that journey, like you said, and just I think a lot of people don't realize 
for an individual to think that after seeing all of those horrible photos and the mistreatment of black migrants at the border, for them to still say this is what I want to do just proves the desperation that they're feeling. So we know that there are about 25,000 or so that's already in Colombia uh, making their way up here. A lot of them are, are families. A lot of them are taking their babies, literally infants, with them that, that we've heard of. Um, and there's a lot of misinformation saying that the border is open, they'll be able to go through. So we just have a very unfortunate situation. And of course, when you're taking that journey, crossing borders, and, and um, a lot of them, they die. Um, a lot of women that, that are getting are getting raped. Uh, it, it's just the situation itself proves the desperation that these people are in. And when they do make it to the border, they only make it to be expelled back to Haiti. I read earlier that they found more than 100 mostly Haitian migrants in an abandoned shipping container on the side of a road in Guatemala. I mean, are is it is it that bad? Are, are many people going through that sort of thing? It's that bad. It is that bad. Um, I, I went, I, so I was one of the individuals from our team that went to the re And when I was coming back, I sat next to a man that was paroled in and just talked to him, have a conversation. And he said that everyone that took this journey and are paroled in, they should be considered heroes. That's how horrible the journey is. It's it's a kind of journey where if you're with your wife or family member or whoever, if they can't continue, you just have to let them. For example, he said there was a man he saw his wife's foot got broken. He couldn't do anything. He just had to continue on the journey without her. It's a it, it's a really really unfortunate situation, and I, I just really hope people would stop to think, wow, it must really be that bad for someone to decide that they would rather put their life at risk than to be where they came from. You said paroled. What do, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So the very few that. Um, were released, they were paroled, and they weren't released really um, just to be released in the country, as a lot of um, sources want want uh, people to believe. So paroled and just means that you have to follow up on your asylum claim um, to see if you have a credible fear to to be in the United States. Um, and have your asylum be approved. So you're still following up with immigration judge, immigration courts, and so forth. But that's the technical legal term for it, is that you're paroled into the United States to seek asylum. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is a lot of those people, they are being placed into expedited removal, meaning they are just released only to be expelled again or deported again back to Haiti. Those who have not been immediately deported, where where are they living and what kind of conditions are they dealing with? So if you, if you, you for those that were released or for those that are in detention centers? Actually, both questions. For those that are released, those are the individuals that we are working with now. And 
for some of them, they have sponsors uh, where they can stay with their sponsors until they follow up and have a final immigration judge order to decide if they're going to be deported or if their asylum claim has been approved. So some, unfortunately, don't have sponsors, and Haitian Bridge Alliance is working hard to, to provide for those individuals. Some, to your second question, those that are detained, so they were under the bridge and now they are in a detention center. They are just waiting until their day comes for them to be reported back to Haiti. And we're hearing that they are living in horrible conditions um, in these detention centers or, or ICE facilities, however you'd want to call them. Um, many of them are not giving food at all. Uh, we've heard a lot or being shackled in overcrowded rooms. Just the other day, I heard a story uh, of one man. He was shackled with over 100 other men in a crowded room. All of them had to, had to stand up. Of course, they couldn't sleep because they had to stay standing up. We've heard stories of just the room being extra in extra cold conditions, um, and they're not giving any blankets, nothing at all. These are the conditions in the detention centers. Why are they being shackled? Are are they on, on some sort of charges, or that's just the way they're putting people there? It's That's a question that we have as well. That's a question that we have. Um, this is not the first time that we've heard We've heard especially black migrants are being shackled in detention centers. It's not the first time that we've even seen when they're going up to to the plane to be deported, they're still in shackles. So I'm not sure what that, why that happened, but it's not um, a weird coincidence at all. Is this the way black migrants trying to get into this country and not just from Haiti, right? Dark-skinned people, people that look black, you know, because they are. Is this the way... Mm-hmm. ICE has been treating them for years. This is not a new situation. Oh, of course. That's not it's not new at all. We've been sounding the alarm since their existence six years ago. Um and, and the anti blackness that's embedded, it, it's 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 so deep in the system that we see it everywhere. I know that the people that have been sent back on the planes to Haiti, some of whom have not been there for years, what are you hearing about conditions there? You just you find your own way. There are really no services for mental health, for the trauma that they went through. There are no assistance for housing. Um, in most cities in Haiti, they're being ruled by gangs. So this is the situation that they're sent to, to where they have to provide for themselves, um, find housing. If you come with your kid, if you're a family unit, then you just have to to find your own way. And a lot of them have no choice but to go back to where the earthquake destroyed a couple weeks ago because they think that at least some resources are going to to be sent there, which makes the recovery even more complicated. That's Taisha Santil at the Haitian Bridge Alliance. You'll remember the crisis in Flint, Michigan, where mostly black residents were poisoned when city officials switched to a contaminated water supply to save money. Now help is on the way for Benton Harbor, Michigan, where residents have been forced to drink bottled water for at least a year and a half because of contaminated drinking water due to old lead pipes. Reporter Andrew Feather tells us the state says it will replace those pipes within 18 months. Water, it's necessary to survive. Reverend Edward Pinckney worries it could be slowly killing his community. This really pierces my heart, you know, to see that people uh, uh, do not have clean water. 
Water is life. Testing results over the last three years showed lead concentrations at least 50% above the federal action level. And for three years, people in the predominantly black city have been drinking water with high levels of lead in it. The city have failed and the state have failed and even the federal government have failed, you see, because they refused to acknowledge that there was a problem. So far of an estimated 2,400 lead water lines in the city, just over 200 have been replaced in the last few years. You could not believe that this is happening in a city in the United States of America. The state health department is now telling the 10,000 people who call Benton Harbor home not to drink the tap water or use it to cook or brush their teeth. According to the EPA, ingesting lead in water can cause a number of serious and sometimes deadly health problems. No matter where a person lives, no matter their identity, their income, everyone, and I want to repeat that, everyone, deserves access to water that they can trust to drink themselves and that they can trust to give to their families. State leaders set a new goal to replace all lead water lines in the next 18 months. The state's new budget set aside $10 million for the project. Michigan's lieutenant governor says 35,000 cases of water will be delivered here each week until every resident has safe water to drink. We believe that this, uh, this response at this level will be what it takes to be able to fully address this problem. Pinckney, now president of the Benton Harbor Community Water Council, says the full scope of the health impact on the community won't be known for years to come. What we have to do is make sure that we hold everybody accountable, not only for their actions, but their inaction. Lead water lines are a problem in cities across Michigan. In Kalamazoo, city officials are in the midst of replacing 10,000 lead water lines. So far, 3,000 of those lines have been replaced. With all of the worries over inflation and rising prices, there are things you can do to cut back. We just have to tighten the belt a little bit more um, because of all the hikes. Hikes at the gas pump. Cost me uh, $60 to fill my car up. You know, if I'm filling up my truck, it's like 100 bucks. you know. Hikes at the grocery store. So there's definitely a cost uh, hike on the fruits and vegetables as well. Look at the difference a year makes. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, food prices are up 3.7 percent, energy up 25 percent, gas up 42.7 percent, and electricity is up 5.2 percent, which is the largest 12-month increase since March of 2014. I always tell people, spend some time reviewing your finances. Just one of many money-saving tips from budgeting expert Andrea Warwick. Others include meal planning to spend less on groceries, shop for used or refurbished electronics, and constantly look for new insurance policies. And I actually did that last year. I noticed my, uh, the price went up on my homeowner's insurance policy. And so I did a quick search, was able to switch, get better coverage, and save over $1,000 on my annual premium. With inflation on the rise due to a domino effect from the pandemic, there's less supply and more demand than many industries can keep up with. As a result, for a lot of people, changing their routines means changing their lifestyles. I used to drive a Mustang, and now I went to the uh, Ford Fusion for that reason. Just got to sacrifice some things to pay for your necessities, really. It's usually the fun stuff you got to sacrifice first. Some gas-saving tips for you. Drive the speed limit, travel with less cargo in your car, and make sure you check the air levels on your tires. That's reporter Jake Reiner.
One of the nation's leading authorities on autism is out with a new book offering advice for working with young people on the autism spectrum. One in 54 children is diagnosed with the disorder, and of those, between 24 and 40 percent are considered to be nonverbal. CBS's Jamie Wax spoke with Temple Grandin. I always make sure I'm introduced as Temple Grandin, professor of animal science. I think that's important that I have a real job. Temple Grandin has split her life between understanding animals and helping explain autism. You consider autism a gift. In the milder forms, it can give you some real advantages. But in the milder forms, you get a brain that's more thinking rather than a brain that's more social-emotional. Being social-emotional eats up a ton of processor space in the brain. My name is Temple Grandin. As the HBO film about her details, her brain works differently. She thinks in pictures. Can you bring everything you've seen to your mind? Sure. Even if it were uh, an everyday object like, uh, say, shoes? I see all the shoes I've worn and my mother's and other people I've met. And you have three pairs. One needs a new heel. And there's shoes in newspaper ads and TV ads. It's a feature of her autism that has helped her understand animal behavior. My work with cattle, the first thing I did was to get down in the chutes to see what cattle were seeing. As I noticed that cattle would, you know, sometimes stop and refuse to move through a chute. And I noticed that maybe there was a coat on a fence, a piece of chain hanging down. And other people didn't notice those things. At the time you discovered all of these things, you were having trouble relating to other human beings. But you related well to animals. Why do you think that was? Well, I think I related to animals because they don't think in words. They think in pictures. (laughs) (laughs) You've seen a lot of breakthroughs with autistic people and these animals. Absolutely. I've had parents tell me that their uh, kid did their first words on a horse. Wow. And this would be mostly younger children. The 74-year-old is the co-author of 11 books on autism. Her latest, Navigating Autism, Nine Mindsets for Helping Kids on the Spectrum, encourages seeing autistic children as more than just their diagnosis. It's a very interesting approach to break this down into mindsets. Where did that come from? Well, it came from the idea of not having them locked into the label. Let's look at other medical conditions that are commonly associated with autism. You take them into the regular doctor and say, well, he's just pitching a fit because he has autism. Well, maybe he's having behavior problems because his stomach hurts, and that needs to be treated. It's interesting to me because as the parent of an autistic child, in many ways I feel like my daughter is born in the best time in history to have autism. Well, when I was a child, the um, individuals with autism either had no speech delay or maybe a very slight speech delay. They would usually get out and get jobs and, and do stuff. Kids like me, I was really severe looking at age three. And what was usually done with kids like me in the 50s is just put us in in an institution. Today, things are so much better. There's just no comparison. Temple Grandin says schools need to offer more hands-on training to help autistic children excel. She also says it means a lot to her when someone says something she said helped a parent understand their kid. Coming up, a little girl and her bear. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. 
Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. It sounds like a Disney movie. A Montana park ranger helped reunite Naomi Pascal with her favorite bear. She got the stuffed animal she calls Teddy just before being adopted from an Ethiopian orphanage in 2016. I have lots of pictures of her getting the bear and um, that was definitely her first toy. Um, and so that was, it was really special that she was able to have that until we were able to go and, and meet her in person. But last year, Teddy went missing when the family was hiking in Montana's Glacier National Park. And that's where park ranger Tom Matsurisi comes in. After a big snowstorm, he spotted Teddy while out on patrol. I noticed this little teddy bear kind of was still snow melting off it a little bit off the trail. Before long, Teddy had a comfy spot on his dashboard where he sat for almost a year until friends of the Pascals actually visited the same park. It just happened upon this this ranger truck randomly and, and her niece saw Teddy in the dashboard. Teddy and Naomi were soon reunited. I'm excited because I didn't know I was going to have to see him again. She was like jumping <laughs> up and down. She was so excited. The Pascals hope to meet Trooper Matsuritsi on their next visit to Glacier National Park. Elise Preston, CBS News. Big changes now in guidance on how millions of people use aspirin. After years of recommending low-dose aspirin to prevent a heart attack or stroke, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has changed course. Based on the latest evidence, we now recommend that people 60 years and older should not start to take aspirin because the harms cancel out the benefits. Dr. John Wong and his colleagues say those harms could include internal bleeding that can be fatal, saying now don't start taking the drug if you're 60 or older and have no history of those conditions. The recommendations do not apply to those who have had a heart attack or stroke and are taking daily aspirin. For adults in their 40s and 50s who are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease but with no history of the disease, the panel recommends they take aspirin only if their doctor advises taking it. Low-dose aspirin is commonly used as a pain reliever, but it is also a blood thinner, which could prevent heart attacks as it reduces blood clots. The about face could affect the daily lives of millions. Doctors with the National Institutes of Health estimate 29 million people who do not have heart disease are taking aspirin every day for prevention. And of those, almost 7 million people do so without a medical recommendation. We're asking uh, patients who are concerned about having a stroke or heart attack to have a conversation with their trusted clinician. I'm Dr. Tara Narula, CBS News, New York. Finally, paying tribute to a legend. Activist historian Timuel Black, the elder statesman and griot to Chicago's African-American community, died this week at the age of 102. Chicago Sun-Times reporter Maudlin Ihejerika joins us with more on the life of a man mourned by a president. 
Black and former President Obama met when Mr. Obama was doing community organizing in the 1980s. That's how Mr. Black and Mr. Obama became friends. Um, Mr. Obama used to turn to Mr. Black as the the griot and all, all knower of everything about the Black community um, and the history of Chicago's Black community, as well as the history of Chicago and civil rights in this nation for counsel. And they became friends. They used to meet at Medici Restaurant in Hyde Park and sit across from each other. And the elder would counsel the younger. And he remained a confidant as Mr. Obama rose up through the ranks of his political career. Mr. Black also was a mentor for Chicago's first Black mayor, Harold Washington, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. In fact, when uh, Chicago's Black community um, was disenchanted with um, the power structure in Chicago, seeking a candidate to run against the then mayor, Jane Byrne, Mr. Black co-chaired the People's Movement for Voter Registration and Education leading efforts that registered more than 250,000 voters to get the late Mayor Harold Washington to run. He loves to tell the story of how Harold Washington was approached by the Black community political structure and, and completely declined and rejected the thought of running. And he finally said if the group could register 200,000 new voters and raise $1 million, he would consider it. Mr. Black promptly went out and did it. Then he called him and said, what are you going to do now? Quote, end quote. And the late mayor, Harold Washington, said, quote, unquote, I guess I'm running. (laughs) He also had a connection with Dr. Martin Luther King. Yes, he did. Mr. Black was right there, just a few scant feet from Dr. King during one of the worst uh, uh, open housing marches that took place here in, in Chicago in the 60s. So as you know, Chicago was the home of the Chicago Freedom Movement when Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Council moved their civil rights activities up north. And Mr. Black became heavily involved in that movement and also became a confidant of Dr. King. And it was during one of those marches in, in segregated Marquette Park that Dr. King was felled to the knee by a huge rock thrown by a mob, a violent mob. And, and, Doc, and, and Mr. Black was only a few feet away. When Dr. King was struck in the head by that rock and fell to his knee, uh, Mr. Black said, quote unquote, that's when I said to myself, if one of them knocked me with the brick, this nonviolent movement is over. Madeline, tell me briefly, why did Timuel Black mean so much to Chicago and so much to- for the fight for civil rights nationwide? I will tell you that this is a man who has been part of every single American movement during his long life, every single movement of the last century, from the civil rights movement to the, uh, the, the war, anti-war movement, the, the Renaissance, the Black Renaissance, Um, This is a man who has been involved in education. He taught the youth of Chicago as an educator in Chicago public schools. He taught them at the Chicago community colleges. And this is a man who worked with W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Dr. King, 
Barack Obama. There is not one major legendary Black icon in this nation that this man has not worked with, walked with, and this is one of our last living legends. That's why we mourn. That was Chicago Sun-Times reporter Maudlin Ihejerika. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced to the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor and Ashley Armstrong provides production assistance. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.